Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Uh, today is Tuesday, but we're doing a Friday show. Why are we doing that? Well, I think everybody knows by now because Jack screwed up last week. I left behind an episode for you guys that didn't get done right and didn't air until yesterday, and I was only able to do one while I was down in Texas seeing my family and taking care of some business and stuff like that. So uh, there was two days without a show last week. One was a Friday, and um, I did not want to let another week go by with uh, you know only one or missing a show of the listener feedback show because I have such a backlog with feedback and calls. So. Uh, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and do today's show as a listener call show. Tomorrow we'll do the listener feedback show we normally do on Monday, and then we'll kind of go back to our regular schedule. Also got some cool interviews coming uh, this week. One will probably air Thursday. The other one will probably air Tuesday next week, so trying to do a lot to bring some variety to you guys. Uh, before we get into your calls, though, Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth lets you live that tactical lifestyle that us guys love so much. Uh, you know, SOE Tactical Gear is uh, is the uh, tactical equipment that they're carrying. Now, best stuff I've ever found. Of all the stuff I've used, the most rugged, dependable equipment I could find is uh, John Willis' stuff, SOE Tactical Gear. You'll now find that at Sawtooth Tactical. You'll also find things like Magpul magazines and anything else you can think of that is really, you know, part of the tactical side of life, you'll find at Sawtooth Tactical, a veteran-owned company, absolutely going to make sure you are happy as their customer every single time. That's why I like doing business with Jeff up there. Uh, next up today, KnifeKits.com. I love knife kits because anyone that wants to learn how to make knives can start with knife kits, and you can evolve as far as you want in the craft. You can be you know, kind of the person that's just basic hand skills and uh, basic uh, tool skills and stuff like that and do some final fit and finish and sharpening and stuff like that. You can get DVDs if you have no idea where to start uh, there as well that help you with the instructional side of that. Or if you're a master bladesmith, you can get raw materials and some of the most exotic uh, handle-making materials and steels you can think of at KnifeKits.com. Right now, uh, I actually have somebody building for me a knife, a neck knife, that is going to have handles made out of mammoth tusk. And uh, while he's not from Knife Kits, he's using them as his supplier, and he got the Mammoth Tusk material from Knife Kits. That's something I didn't even know you could do. I didn't know that you know the average person could go out and buy Mammoth Tusk material. That gives you an idea of the breadth of things from the most simple to the most exotic that are available from Knife Kits. Remember, if you're in the member support brigade, you do get a discount on everything you buy from Knife, knife Kits. So make sure you log into your MSB account, and uh, uh, when you do that, uh, get the, the discount code before you order. Uh, next up, this is uh, the last day, the last day of the contest for Shelf Reliance. Somebody's going to win a Harvest 72. Uh, I'll have a link in today's show notes on their blog post of what you need to do to try to win that, but it's pretty simple. It's basically making a comment and hooking up with them on Facebook. That's a $400 plus rack shelf system, and uh, I think it's awesome that they're going to give one of those away to the audience. I have one myself. I think it's just one of the best food rotation storage systems out there. Uh, so do take a chance at that because at the end of today, the contest is over and they will be picking a winner. 
Uh, next up, remember, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Also, consider joining the forum. And uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. When you join the Member Support Brigade, the first thing you're doing is you're supporting this show. If you listen every day and you say to yourself, you know what, I think the content on this show is worth 20 cents an episode, even though it's free. And then you decide, okay, well, I want to support the show, so maybe that would be why you join the Member Support Brigade. But I don't do business just on that because I feel like that's kind of like, you know, if it's free, it's free. So it's a choice, but I also think I need to give you something back. So what I did is I put together over 25 different vendors to offer you discounts uh, that if you buy any of the stuff that we talk about, from seeds from your garden to long-term storage food to tactical stuff, you name it, if you buy that stuff uh, in an average year, you're going to save far more than the 50 bucks, so you're going to get your money back. Additionally, I put in there over $100 worth of ebooks that are completely free for download and some additional content. So it's a great deal, and you help support the show. Remember, though, if you're military or law enforcement, and I'll even do this for Peace Corps people. If you served in the Peace Corps for two years and, and then came back, I mean, there's a, there's a big sacrifice to doing that. So if you're part of that group, law enforcement, military, Peace Corps, prior service, Uh, or active duty in any of those, email me before you join. I have a special discount code just for you. Everybody else, you pay full price. If everybody got the discount, it wouldn't be special, right? So with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Of course, that means taking your call, so let's go ahead and take your first call now. Hi, Jack. This is Mark out in South Dakota. Love the show. Got a quick question. I'm thinking about building a, a methane digester, And I'm looking at some different plans. I got a pretty good idea what to do, but I'm a little confused on what kind of appliances you can use with biogas and if you need to modify them in some way or not. I know it's basically a natural gas, but I'm not sure about the pressures and if you need to change, change the orifice sizes and all that good stuff. So I thought maybe you or one of the other listeners would know. Appreciate it. Thanks for doing the show. Bye. Well, it's a great question. The reason it's a great question is I don't have a complete answer. I always like getting questions where I can't give you a complete answer because that means I get to learn too. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Number one, I know it's not that complicated. It's not that big a deal, and it's fairly easy to do. And whoever you're buying the appliances from should be able to answer that question, and if they can't, find a different supplier. So that would be the easy way out to leave it there. Um, I'll also tell you this. The Nazis did biogasification in uh, World War II because of resource shortages. So it's something we should be doing at a much bigger level than just the individual. And again, if we could be done in 1935, it's not that complicated. We can do it today. But I do know who knows the answer to this. Uh, and it's a group of guys I've been trying to get one or all or a group of them or a part of them on the show for a guest. I've reached out to them two or three times, and I've never heard back except one time, and they're like, yeah, we like what you're doing, and then I just didn't hear back anymore. So I'm going to ask the listeners to help me today. Uh, there's a group of guys called the Urban Farming Guys. I'll put a link to their YouTube channel and their blog today, and I need you to help me get them on the show because there's two things I'm really interested in what they're doing. I'm interested in their whole operation, but two things that are parts of their operation I really want to talk to them about is one, the way they're doing their aquaponics system, and two is biogasification, and they're doing methane digestion in a three-part system using a garbage disposal and waste food materials to do the methane uh, production. And they, they showed there where they actually had a prototype working, and it ran a little stove. So I know they know the answer, and I know they can help us with this, and I know they'd make a fascinating interview. 
I've heard from a bunch of you guys about the urban farming guys saying, hey, you should get them on the shows. Yes, I've tried. So now I need to send the troops out. I need you guys, don't be like, hey, why aren't you on the show? I don't want you doing that, right? These guys are great guys, and I love what they're doing. And who knows, maybe there's a little bit of their concern with the name survival or whatever. I don't know. But I would love to have them on the show. And I'd like you all to reach out to them very, very politely and nicely today and say, hey, Jack Spirico has been talking about you guys on the Survival Podcast. He'd love to have you as a guest. Why don't you go by his website, fill out the guest survey submission. Guys, only do that, that through this week. Don't bother these. If you're in a show, you know, two, three weeks out, don't, don't keep harassing them. Either they're going to respond or they're not. But I want them on the show. I want to get this guy an answer. I want to get us all some answers, some really cool stuff these guys are doing. And if you haven't checked them out, go to their YouTube channel from the today's show notes and look at some of the projects they're doing, the way they're uh, doing uh, fertilizer off of fish waste, not just in the general aquaponics way, but uh, using a vortex filter and doing very, very high densities of fish. So they actually have to remove some of the waste directly as well. Absolutely awesome. So check them out. Harass them for me, and let's find out. And if anybody else knows about biogas, anybody out there is kind of an expert on this, or just you know maybe just has some experience in it. You've been making your own biogas, you've been using it. I'd love to have you on the show as well. Just go, again, anytime you want to be on the show because you think you can help out with something, or you know someone that should be on the show. The best way to do that now is on our site. There's a link for a guest submission survey. Click that link and fill that form out. Love to have you on. Best I can do there, again, all I can say is it's not that hard, and if you're going to be using a methane gas, uh, you're going to have to store it somewhere, and it's going to create some kind of pressure, and the, your supplier may need to know that, but they should be able to give you a reasonable answer. All these guys had was a typical, like an old gas stove, and they had a barrel, and it was on top of another barrel with like a water float, so it made pressure, and as the uh, gas filled up, uh, the, 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 the barrel floated up on top of the other barrel. And you can see their video where they did this. They did a little test with it, and then they, they plumbed it into an old gas stove and <laughs> lit right up. So, again, I know it's not that complicated. If we can get them on the air, we can get more specifics about it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. I was just listening to one of the questions you were answering about uh, firearm selection and how handguns are grossly inferior um, Ideally, we would be carrying a long gun of some some sort. My question is, how do carbines fall into that uh, train of thought? Um, is a for home defense is a carbine a uh, adequate weapon when compared to say a shotgun, or is it just because of the uh, the type of load, uh, the type of shot that's coming out, um, still going to be inferior than than a uh, just a good uh, you know legal short barreled uh, shotgun? Um, thanks a lot. Bye. Well, it's a great question, and the answer is it depends. Um, for instance, I have a little Caltech carbine. It's a 9mm with a 16-inch barrel. It folds up. It's a great little gun, one I need to do a review on for you guys someday. Uh, but it's a 9mm. Now, it has a little bit more velocity because of the longer barrel, but it's still a 9mm. So, carbine or not, it's still at the same stopping, killing power level as, as a 9mm. So, uh, woefully inadequate, I don't believe, is the term that I used. It's 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 in in comparison to a rifle or shotgun or carbine of equivalent caliber, uh, rifle caliber. It's it's going to be inadequate uh, as far as comparing the two. So, plenty of people have been killed with nine millimeters. Plenty of people have been killed with twenty-two long rifles. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be a great defensive round as a twenty-two long rifle. Very few people would make that case. Uh, so it's all about what the weapon is shooting. 
And the reason I say inadequate is is because in a fight, you don't want to fight fair, right? The whole concept of a fair fight, that's for schoolyards and boxing rings. In a life-and-death situation, you want overwhelming, immediate stopping power, uh, and you want the other person dead before they have the opportunity to respond to you. So you take a 9 millimeter, you put two or three into the chest of somebody, odds are they're going to die. All right, well-placed shots and good ammo and what have you. But the question is, do they have the capability before they expire to return fire and either seriously or mortally wound you? And the answer is when they're hit with double-O buckshot um, at, at home defense ranges, the general answer is no, especially if they're hit in the thorax, the chest, the neck, the head, that type of thing uh, with, a, with a decent spread of double-O or number four buck or something like that. Same thing when we look at uh, two two three uh, or, or any type of a, of a conventional rifle caliber. So when you say is a carbine the same or different, a carbine's a short rifle. But then we're going to go and we're going to step down to the cartridge that it's carrying. So... We could have a full-size rifle, if we did, with, uh, let's say, a Marlin Lever Action 38 Special. Um, it's a rifle, right? It's really a carbine because it's a little bit shorter. And that's all a carbine is, guys. This is a shorted, shortened rifle. Uh, but but it, that might as well be a handgun at this point, just like my little 9mm Kel-Tec. If we kind of move into like this mid-space, like a lot of not, not a lot of people are going to walk around carrying a 44 Magnum. Uh, handgun because of the size of the weapon, what have you. So it's a it's a frame size thing. But if we step that Marlin lever gun up to a 44 Magnum, and you ask me, is that an effective home defense weapon? Absolutely, because it's about the power of the round. So it's not really whether it's carbine or rifle. In fact, I would tell you that a carbine or short barrel shotgun would be the way to go for a home defense weapon above just about anything else. Um, that said, I actually think the shotgun is the way to go. I, I think that it's very, very hard to beat you know, a shotgun with something around a 16 to 21-inch barrel uh, with a good load of buckshot in it. Uh, I'm a big fan of number four or number three buck in, in those ranges. A lot of people are bigger fans of double O. I got nothing against it. I just believe in more is better. And uh, number four, number three buck uh, shot sizes are are uh, more than sufficient with killing power. Uh, I used to be a big believer that you could, for home defense weapons, step down to something like birdshot, like number six or what have you. Um, but after watching some of the work done by people on websites like theboxoftruth.com, I came to the conclusion that I don't think that you, even at close ranges, heavy chokes, that that's going to be sufficient to always end the fight. And that's what I want you to really understand about this. It's not whether or not the wound will be eventually lethal. It's will the wound cause the attack to stop now. And here's the reality of this. No matter what you do, you can never be assured of that. All we can do is within reason try to get as close to that approximation as we possibly can. And that's the fundamental reality. If you are ever involved in exchange of gunfire, I don't care how trained you are. I don't care how, how well armed you are. I don't care what tactical advantage you, you might end up in or have against you. There is no guarantees that anything's going to work the way it's supposed to, and there's no guarantee that you're not going to end up six feet under. That, that's the harsh reality there. So what I'm saying when I say things like, for home defense, I prefer a rifle or a shotgun or a carbine, which I just left that out, and that's what precipitated this is, that in a situation where lethal force may be necessary, I want it to be sufficiently lethal for as quick a termination of the assault as possible. All right, so you put me in a situation where I have a choice between a 38 special revolver and a sharp stick. 
Uh, and I'm going to take the 38 special every single time. But I don't want to be limited to that. And again, the reason we don't, or the reason handguns exist in the first place, and this is important to understand, is for carrying a backup weapon or for carrying a weapon when it is not practical or legal to carry a long gun. And again, when I say long gun, I'm including carbine in that equation. So um, the carbine question is really not about how long the, the weapon is. It's about what's in the chamber. I'll also tell you this. A good carbine, a good shotgun, a good rifle, the average person is going to be a much more proficient shooting that uh, in a stress-filled situation than they are a handgun. There's a lot less margin of error, especially when we're talking about hitting a target that is, let's say, from the waist to the head of the average man-sized uh, individual, right? That's actually really, really, really easy to hit with anything approaching a rifle or a carbine um, or a shotgun. And people can say all they want about lining up sights and all the average. You, you got to understand. Go to your go in your house. Find the longest distance you possibly could end up from an assailant inside your home, and you're going to realize how close that is. And point and shoot will work very well in those distances. I'm not saying you shouldn't align sights if you have the opportunity, but what I'm telling you is, in a lot of situations, you don't get the opportunity. And I don't care how well you, you're trained you are, you're not out on a range, you're not having someone give you clear clear to fire, you don't have instruction, you don't have good lighting, uh, it's it's a totally different, your blood pressure's jacked up, I don't care if when you practice you run two miles and do 50 push-ups and then shoot, it's never going to be the same, it's always going to be different. And those of you who have ever been, and not necessarily with a gun, but any type of truly dangerous situation, you know what I'm talking about and you know that that feeling and that 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 way that your body's reacting at that time can't be replicated by anything except something of equivalent danger. So uh, th those are my thoughts on that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from St. Louis. I got a question on rocket mass here. Um, as far as the ductwork goes inside of those things, could that just be like a standard um, ductwork? You know, like the six inch or eight inch duck worker, has it got to be like a double walled type thing? I've been looking these things up on the internet and, and I haven't found any specifics on those things. And also, I've got a, uh, a flex duck that, uh, I don't know where it came from, but I've got a huge one and I was wondering if something like that would work. It's, it's, uh, it's a heavier duty one than, than the sort of, uh, um, drier vent one. But anyway, uh, that, that was my question. Thanks for everything you do. Well, I've not actually ever built a rocket mass heater yet. It's something I'm going to do as part of the greenhouse construction that will be going on through the fall this year. Uh, the greenhouse slash greenhouse slash aquaponics house that we'll be building will have an, um, a rocket mass heater uh, built into the earth using the earth as a thermal mass. Uh, so I'll get some hands-on experience, and maybe I can uh, give you a better answer at that point. But here's what I'll tell you. One, you don't need double-walled or anything like that. By the time you have... The, uh, the heat moving through and the exhaust moving through the ducting system, you're actually looking to dump the heat into the thermal mass. So at that point, you're not wanting to hold it anymore. anymore. The place where you're going to use something heavy-duty, um, if you want to call it that, is going to be the combustion chamber, where you have the secondary combustion going on, the extreme heat being generated, the exhaust being burned, the biogas being burned, all that good stuff, and then it's going to pass on, and it should be, at that point, pretty much sending us out water vapor steam is, is all we should be really getting in the exhaust uh, because of the efficient burn that we've accomplished by that point. What I've seen people like on Paul Wheaton's videos using, though, is not dryer ducting. I don't think I would do that, and I'm not an expert about dryers either, so 
If these two things are equivalent, fine, but I don't believe that they are. The ducting would be generally the ducting that you would use for things like a fireplace uh, chute. And that comes in various sizes, and that's what I believe you should be using. And certainly it should be uh, capable of handling whatever is needed to be done since it's designed to be used with fire per, per, you know, fireplaces, uh, stovepipe, things like that. So use something that's designed to move extremely hot air through it. Uh, again, piping or ductwork for a stove or a fireplace or a fireplace insert, that type of ducting material. Not a dryer. A dryer doesn't generate anywhere near the heat that a fireplace um, does. And certainly nowhere near the heat that a, a rocket mass heater will. So best I can do on that one for you right now. Um, I am looking for people uh, for interviews. As I've said earlier, I'm trying to do more of those. If someone out there is a... Uh, a real pro with rocket mass heaters. I would love to have you on. If you know someone who is, if you're following their blog or something, you want to get in touch with them and recommend bringing them on the show. I'm trying to bring as many guests on as I can going out through the rest of the year, bring more variety to the show uh, instead of just having me monologue all the time. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dave. Uh, I, my question was regarding uh, storing up precious metals uh, of the copper-plated type. Um, I've got a couple of Side arms in a 22 uh, currently, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were as far as how much is enough. Uh, thanks. You have a good day. On some levels, this is a very personal decision, but there's I can definitely give you some guidance. First of all, I'll start out with the 22. Uh, if you're going to do any shooting at all, uh, especially with a semi-automatic, you can burn through a couple hundred rounds in you know very very short periods of time. Even with reasonably um, mentally centered practice, let's put it that way. So not necessarily just blowing and going as fast as you can, but setting up uh, uh, reactive targets or setting up paper targets and, and taking a 10-22 and loading up, you know, five five magazines and uh, and, and and firing each one off uh, with a re relatively steady cadence uh, at a uh, at a paper target or reactive target. Uh, we're not talking a very long time to get through that. So. You want to have a lot of your 22 because it's so versatile. It's versatile in a survival situation, a small game hunting situation, if need be a self-defense or large game situation, and for practice. With the price and size of 22s, I don't think there's any excuse for anybody out there that's going to call themselves a prepper having less than 2,000 rounds of 22 long rifle. Uh, we're talking about a brick is 500 rounds, so four bricks at about 30 bucks a piece, $120. Uh, and you could do much better than that on pricing if you shop around and what have you. Um, that's you know kind of rough numbers off the top of the head on the 22. If you told me you wanted to have 10,000 rounds of 22 and you were willing to make the investment in it, and every time you used up, let's say, 500 rounds, you were going to replace it and keep rotating your ammo, I'd say have at it, and that makes a lot of sense. You say sidearms, I don't know what you what you have, but uh, this is going to be highly dependent on you know do you have common calibers. And I, I don't mean common calibers like 9mm is a common caliber. I mean common calibers for you. So a person could have like four sidearms. Well, are they? do you have two 9mm and two 45s? Or do you have a 9mm, a .380, uh, a 40 Smith & Wesson, and then a 45? Depending on what you do there, you're going to have to think a little bit differently about what, what's going on. And do you want to maybe really stock up on something that's your main weapon? Um, so, you know, maybe in that situation, maybe you decide 9mm is what you want to go heavy on the stock with. But for your sidearms, I'd say at least one of them, at least one of them, you should have somewhere near 1,000 rounds and no less than 200 for everything else. And these are my numbers, and your numbers can be higher or lower, and I'm okay with that. 
you didn't ask about it, but if we move into the realm of like an AR-15 uh, or other type of uh, uh, main, you know, with the people that are of this mindset would call a main battle rifle, what I'll just call uh, a, a main battery rifle, uh, I would say that you need a minimum of a thousand rounds of that as well. Bulk ammo is where I get uh, my ammo, not just because they're a sponsor, because once I found them, I'm always happy to have them as a sponsor. I was happy to be able to buy from them. Uh, so, you, know, you guys with your AR 15s or your AKs or whatever, I say a thousand rounds there. A hunting rifle, you know, your 308, your 06, your 270, I'm gonna say a hundred rounds minimum, minimum. And I believe a great way to augment this then is to learn the skill of hand loading and try to get as common as you can with components. And, and what I mean by that is you might own a 308 and a 3006. Well, you might be able to find a good powder for both of them and a good bullet for both of them. And that way the only variant and, and the primer is going to be the same. So the only variance is going to be um, the cartridge itself and how much powder you use. Now, that's a little bit um, too simplistic because if you own a 308 and a 3006, it's because you like the rifles. It's not for any ballistic difference between the two because they're ballistically twins. But maybe a better way to put that would be a 308 and a 300 Magnum as a hunter. Maybe you have that 300 Magnum for those, those longer shots when you go out west hunting or something like that. But as much as you can do to create commonality, so... Even when you have differences in your powder type uh, and your, your, your bullet components, you can still have common uh, primers. So you have small, you know, small rifle, small pistol, large rifle, large pistol, and there are magnum primers, but I, that's something that I think is more hype than, than reality, uh, honestly, because I've used standard uh, large rifle, large pistol primers for 44 magnum loads, and I've never had any problems in my velocity, the rate where the manual says they should be. So, while I wouldn't go the other way and put the magnum primer into the standard load, I've never had a problem going the other way, reverse around. Um, so, hand loading and adding that to that that group, I think, is a great thing that you can do. With hand loading, uh, you can start small. Don't buy everything right away. Don't go out and buy. I have 10 calibers, so I'm going to buy all the stuff for those 10 calibers. You know, go out and buy everything you need to reload one caliber and learn how to do it. And then, at that point, you're adding dies and shell holders and things like that. For reloading components, I cannot recommend Lee high enough. They are the most affordable and damn good at everything they build, with one exception. I do not like their perfect powder measure. I'm looking at buying one of the powder scale measure devices that uses electronics and drops the powder into the scale, and the two communicate with each other. Uh, RCBS is the one I think I'm going to buy. I want to actually make a decision on that, set up all the reloading gear. I'm going to do that here at the office and start doing some videos on reloading. I'll let you guys know which one I choose and why. But, Lee, I'm solid on everything they do except that daggone perfect powder measure. I've had powder come out the side. I've had inconsistent loads. Um, I, you know, And I've had people say they have one and theirs works great. That's fine. Um, I, I only ever bought one. I never replaced it, so I'm not sure. But especially I like to do a lot of loading with ball powders, which are very fine, and some leaks out the side. And Lee said that can happen, and that's not a problem, and don't worry about it. Sweep it up and, and, and discard a little bit that comes out. My problem is when what leaks out the side seems like it should have went down in the powder measure, and my loads are not consistent, and I've had variances as much as a grain from load to load. And if you're at like a mid-level load, one grain of powder difference, eh, you might have a little bit of inconsistency with your your your, uh, your, your shooting, but it's, there's no danger. But if you're loading maximum loads, and then you th it, it throws an extra grain of powder, you've got a problem there. So uh, that, that's that's been a concern for me. 
To be fair to Lee, usually what's happened, though, is it's undercharged. Uh, so it's not been a safety issue, and that's probably why they haven't had any real problems with that. But I don't like the perfect pattern measures to take away from that. But on your ammo, your choices, but with uh, with 22 long rifles, several thousand rounds, it's cheap, it's small, it, it, there's no reason not to. Uh, with uh, a, a, a main rifle that you might depend on, again, about a thousand rounds. Shotgun shells, um, you know, for home defense situations, it all depends Uh, but if you're if you're planning on using that as a main defensive weapon in a long-term shoot at the fan, 500 to 1,000 rounds of that type of uh, ammunition, birdshot and things like that, uh, it can be, depending on what you hunt and where, if you're a dove hunter, you know that 1,000 rounds of 8-shot is not a big deal. Uh, if you're mostly a pheasant, rabbit, and uh, grouse hunter, that might seem like, you know, that would last you for the rest of your life. Uh, so those are, those are situationally dependent. Let's go ahead and take another call. Thank you, Jack, for your show. This is Bill from St. Louis. Uh, wanted to know if you could give some comments uh, on underground, commercially made underground shelters. Uh, definitely a luxury item if you can afford one. Uh, wanted to know what you see as, you know, how they would fit in with what we're looking at in the future. And I'm looking at it from the standpoint of being valuable for storage and kind of a underground root cellar. If you could, your comments and insights on this would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Oh, there's a couple ways to look at that. One would be people would say, well, you're preparing for the end of the world as we know it with nuclear holocaust, and it's not real likely, so if you're going to do it, do it last, and it doesn't really serve any purpose other than to go hide underground, and if uh, you're going to live your entire life underground, well, what, 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 is it really worth living in the first place? I don't totally disagree with that, but I don't see that as the only purpose, and that's where we can branch out into why you would have this. First of all, um, probably the most deadly threat out there to us that we're going to experience, not we might experience or sooner or later somebody's going to experience, but we are going to experience, especially from, I would say, uh, West Texas all the way to the East Coast, is tornadic activity. And, and there is absolutely no doubt that from now on and forever before and forever after, at some point every year, there will be a breakout of tornadoes. And if you can go underground when there's a tornado, you have a 99.9999999999% chance in a, in a good underground structure of surviving a direct hit by an F-1000 tornado. You know, it doesn't even exist. The most devastating tornado out there, if you're in a good, solid underground structure, it'll go right across the top of you and you're safe. So, so that alone, if you don't have a basement in your home, and, and you know, there's a big difference between a basement and an underground shelter. So even if you live in a high tornado area, um, so there's there's a, an entirely sane use for it. Uh, so so to me that that starts to open up why we would want it. Now you mentioned about things like using it as a root sh uh, root cellar and things like that. Definitely for storage, you got st stable temperatures uh, and a good storage environment, and that's another great reason to want one. It's not a root cellar though. A root cellar has a dirt floor. Uh, a root cellar has things vented in a very specific way. If you want a root cellar, you need to build a root cellar. If you want an underground storage facility that can double as a shelter, you want a commercial underground structure. Maybe long term, if you have the resources, you want both because they do two different things. Can you shelter in a root cellar? Absolutely. It might be a great place to shelter. Is it as good uh, for severe impact type situations as a commercial underground structure? Absolutely not. One is designed for one thing and one is designed for another. Just want to clear that up. Um, on, you know, kind of getting it done. 
if you have the money and you've done and I would say you've done the other basic things let's say you're not going to starve to death uh, if you have to go a month without food if you're in a situation where you don't have a month's worth of food and you're put in a bomb shelter i think your allocation and your reasoning is off but let's say you've got the basics of prepping done and you're putting this in as a component of your overall plan Great. And if you have the money, the best way I could say to do this is to get a commercial uh, producer to do it for you. You know it'll be warrantied. You know it'll be done right. And what could your warranty if the nuclear bomb goes off and you're dead? doesn't really matter anyway. All right. What I mean by warranty is if something's not working right, if it's not supposed to have water in it, it's leaking, what have you, you have warranties and issues and ways that can be recovered on. Safe Castle Royal, uh, also known as Safe Castle LLC, One of our sponsors specializes in hardened structures, including underground ones. I would talk to them about it. I think they could do a great job for you. There are other options, though. One would be you know, self-construction of a root cellar. Uh, we did an episode where we talked about burying a shipping container. Uh, so that would be another option. You know, there's, there's, there's all types of ways to build an underground structure. The key is, if it's stressed, will it hold? And, and that's where, you know, where when you go with a commercial structure designed to deal with stresses, including things like a tornado or an earthquake, um, you're going to be better off if it's available to you. So let's liken this to something else in making this decision. If I'm out in the woods and I have a ferro rod, an iron ferro rod, that I can use to strike and start a fire, uh, am I going to sit down with a bow drill and try to make a primitive fire in a situation where it just rained a couple days ago and a lot of stuff in the woods are moist? No, I'm going to use a ferro rod. But if I don't have a ferro rod, then I'm going to turn to something like a bow drill and try to make friction fire or find a, le a lens and you know whatever I can do to make it work depending on what situation I'm in. So when we look at buying things for our homes, we might decide, yeah, I'm going to go with the commercial structure. We might get a quote on it and go, I just can't afford it. I don't want to go into debt for this or what have you. If we can afford it, we go head forward. If we can't, then we look at what can we fall back to. And a good old-fashioned root cellar will do a lot of what any kind of underground structure is going to do for you. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that that's one option. And, again, burying a shipping container, um, I don't know how much more affordable that would really be. You have to get some quotes to make that decision. But those are my thoughts. Uh, eventually, I want to put in some sort of an underground structure uh, for ourselves up at our bug-out location, which is, I guess, now our homestead. And I am much more concerned, even though we have mitigation up here from tornadic activity with the mountains, about a tornado than a nuclear holocaust. And that's one of the big concerns I have. I also really like the concept of a stable storage temperature. Even though, if you do something like burying a container or doing a commercial structure, it is not a root cellar because it doesn't have a dirt floor. There's certain moisture characteristics and things like that in a root cellar for storing roots. You've got this very stable temperature. It's never going to get real, real hot. It's never going to get real, real cold. And you can store a lot of things down there uh, that will extend their storage life. So I think that's those are the two things that I'm after. Those are my thoughts. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Love the show. This is Terry in Indiana. Um, I was driving along listening to your interview with Dr. Kyle Christensen. Passed a stand of tiger lilies and remembered something my wife asked me. She says, I wonder if there's anything useful you can do with tiger lilies because they're everywhere. What do you think? Is there? Thanks, Jack. Okay, well, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And here, here's how I mean that. Uh, as far as medicinal usage, um, they're traditionally used in Chinese medicine uh, for things like uterine neuralgia, 
Uh, and then when women are having really, and this is a tincture made from the plant itself, women are having like a lot of nausea with their pregnancies uh, or a lot of morning sickness, that tincture has traditionally been useful. And that's something you want to consult an herbalist before you use something like that because I don't dispense medical advice or even herbal um, medicinal advice. I just tell you what the traditional uses were. So there are some additional uses. Uh, Chinese practitioners also believe that it has the ability, a person that's overly aggressive and is having, let's say, anger issues, Uh, to help suppress those anger issues. And um, I'm not big on the whole Bach flower remedies issue, but I wonder if maybe uh, Bach used them. I, I'm not real familiar with Bach flower remedies because I think some of it's honestly crap, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was uh, in, in the uh, the quiver uh, or the another arrow in the quiver of the tiger lily. So there's some additional uses. Uh, what I like best about tiger lilies, though, is they're edible. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, and there's two parts that are edible. There's the flower and the bulb. Uh, the flour is good raw in a salad. It's good chopped up raw in a salad like that. Another cool way to do it is to make up some type of a cheese stuffing. Let's say get some uh, cream cheese, uh, mix that up with some dill right, from our, our, our herbal cooking show uh, last week and uh, stuff the flour with that and pinch and shut, lightly batter it and deep fry it. You'd be shocked at how good that would probably be. Uh, and then the bulbs themselves, if you dig up tiger lily bulbs, and you just cut into one and you eat it, it's going to taste bitter and it's honestly going to take like, taste like crap. There's nothing wrong with it. It won't hurt you, but it's not really very good. But if you roast it and, and allow some of the starch sugar conversion to happen there and bring some of the sweetness out, it tastes a lot more similar to, let's say, a nice russet potato. It's not going to be the same, uh, but they're edible. So the roots are edible, the flowers are edible, and the plant itself has medicinal uses. So, yeah, they're everywhere, and I think sometimes when things are everywhere, We, we tend to look at them and go, since they're everywhere, they can't be that powerful. Well, this is a very powerful edible and medicinal plant. Uh, like the dandelion. You think about a dandelion, we're in the same boat. We've got a, we've got an edible green, an edible flower, uh, and a root that can be used medicinally, uh, can be used to make a coffee substitute. Uh, the root of the dandelion and the flowers of dandelions can also be used to make, uh, different types of wine. Uh, a wine made from dandelion root is actually very similar to like a dry sherry. Uh, and the flower wine is uh, it's really, a, I don't know why I haven't made any in the past couple of years. It's a spectacular little light table wine. Um, so I know you didn't ask about dandelions. I'm just trying to draw the analogy here that just because we see something everywhere doesn't mean it doesn't have a tremendous number of uses for us. In China, they actually cultivate the tiger lily for food. And here's the interesting part. As the flowers form, they actually cut the flower heads off. And why? Uh, without the flower the roots grow bigger and they get a better yield. So the main yield that they look for from tiger lilies in China isn't the flower, it's the bulb. But you can do either one here. Uh, it's up to you guys. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is John from West Virginia. I was listening to your calling uh, episode from last Friday, and uh, I'm totally uh, different on that situation. Talking about telling your neighbors that you're a prepper and this or that. I've tried to preach it to the guys I work with here many, many times, and I've heard them say it a hundred different times. They said, well, if something ever happens, we'll just come to your house, John, and you can take care of us. And then I have to tell them immediately, you know, I'm, you'll be staring down the bed end of a 308 if you come to my house if something happens. I just, there's so many people that think they are, I can't think of the word, uh, entitled for somebody else to take care of. It's 
that's my opinion on it. Thanks a lot, man. I don't remember the exact episode, John, but John, again, thanks for coming and calling in. I just love to hear your voice, dude. It's just awesome. Anyway, um, I, here's the thing. It is a balancing act, and it's a decision you have to make for yourself. But let's let's start out with your guys at work and say, John, we'll just come to your house, and you tell them, hey, look, you do that, and that's not going to work out real well for you. Um, actually, I think that's a great thing because it – First of all, here's the thing. Whenever anybody says this crap like, well, if something happens, I'll come to your house. You know what they're saying? Gee, I'm screwed. I didn't realize how screwed I was, and now I'm trying to cover up the fact that I'm screwed by saying I can rely on you. And that does give you the opportunity to say, you know what, man, in a, a typical situation that's not that extreme, if I could help you, I would, but if there's an extreme situation, you're on your freaking own. So um, I think there's a good opportunity to wake people up there. Now, about telling people you're a prepper and whatnot, I... I think there's a big difference in talking to people around you about basic preparedness and saying, hey, I, I'm a prepper and you should be too. I have six months worth of food and you should you should too. I have medical spot and, and telling people the extents of your preps. I think that would be a huge, huge mistake, and I don't think you should go that far. But here's the reality. The more people around you that have basic preparedness locked down, the less fear you have of people showing up to take what you have. And this is, this is here's where I, I disagree with a lot of people about this whole, you know, operational security, silent, you know, silent and, 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 and unseen thing. If you live out on a back 40 somewhere where you, you can't even see your neighbors, you might be able to pull that off. If you live in an urban, suburban, even a rural neighborhood where you see your neighbors every day and you guys know each other and you, you wave to each other and stuff like that, if it gets that bad... The, the, the concept that you could be well prepared and, and taking care of yourself and not have anybody around you at that time realize it is, is, is just nonsensical. It's ridiculous. The fact that you're there and alive will make you a target. So now what are you going to do? Board your house and pretend you're not there? And I mean, in extreme situations, maybe that's an approach you take. But the people that live around you, they know you haven't left. They know you're there. People are going to start looking to depend on each other anyway. You can either set groundwork to where people are somewhat prepared and somewhat knowing what to do and somewhat ahead of the game, or you can leave it completely undiscussed, and then you're taking a risk. Now, some of you will live in neighborhoods like my old neighborhood in Arlington, and you try to talk to people there. You don't, Not even about that subject. You just talk to people, and you go, okay, there's nothing I can do here. I just can't. I, there's nothing I can do here. These people aren't going to listen. And they don't need to know anything more than whatever I've already decided to tell them, and that's going to be the end of it. And it's sad that there's some areas like that, but there are. There are places where the people, you know, you might live in a place where the people around you are so flipping brain dead, uh, the best thing you can do is stay incognito. And then you'll find varying levels of that in between. Uh, we know our neighbors up here in Arkansas so much better uh, from the limited time we've been here than we ever knew our neighbors in Arlington. Why? Because they're more accessible. But there are also people that are already halfway down the path before anybody even mentions preparedness. There are gardens everywhere. Uh, people have generators. People, if you live in the right environment, preparedness is, is sort of something you got to do anyway. Um, and I also think that we need to keep a lid on this concept of the road warrior end of the world scenarios. These are these are not the things that we're likely to deal with. Is there a chance it could happen? Yes. There's also a chance that tomorrow someone will knock on your door and go, 
Dear Mr. Prepper, you just won $5 million in so-and-so sweepstakes with a big cardboard check, and it won't be a scam, it'll be real, and you'll actually have won $5 million. That, that could happen. It will happen to somebody this year for some contest somewhere. I don't know if they do Publishers Clearinghouse anymore now that McMahon's dead or whatever, but stuff like that happens. People win lotteries. But if you prepare to win the lottery, you're kind of screwed. And I think in a lot of ways, if we prepare only with the concept of the complete implosion of all society, uh, people running around like mutant zombies and stuff like that, we're just not getting it. So let me put this to you a different way. If you are in a scenario where your neighborhood is rocked by a tornado and you do have resources and you can help your neighbors, are you really going to sit around and not? Not a situation where we don't know when and we don't know if, but we know that we just got to make it through together for a few days. Are you going to really not help your neighbors in the first place? And I think most people would. And I think if you wouldn't, you really need to do some self-examination. Now, we have a global pandemic. Everybody's out for themselves. It could be years like this. I can understand the situation. I can't help everybody. Maybe I can't help anybody. I got to do what I can to get mine through. And those are two different worlds. And we need to speak to people in such a way. Let's use the term plausible deniability. All right, so if we talk to people about prepping and we kind of get them on with a basic you know, preparedness that we, should, we need to do in our neighborhood, that type of thing, then we're talking about prepping for a couple weeks. And that way that anybody that would ever come to you for help would realize that's all I got, even though you might have more. So there's, there's ways to balance this. If you decide, though, for yourself, I don't want to talk to anybody, period, at all about what I want to do. I keep everything 100% secret. I respect and appreciate your decision, and I think that's what you should do. And if you feel like you want to tell everybody you can because you want to build the most prepared neighborhood you can, and you want to do that in a smart, logical way, I support and respect your decision. And anything in between the two is okay. This is not something we all have to agree on. It's not something we are all going to ever agree on. And there's strengths and weaknesses to any position you take at one extreme, the other, or anywhere in between. And a lot of it is going to be very situationally dependent upon where you live. I will tell you this. I will tell you this, and this is a flat fact. The people out there that believe if it ever really gets that bad, they're just going to grab their AR-15 and go out and take whatever they want, will end up dead. They'll end up dead. They may get away with it a couple times. They may go steal some stuff at first when people are not quite um, soldiered up, let's call it that. But if that is a person's plan and that is the only preparedness plan they have, they're going to end up hanging from a tree from somewhere, as they should. Law, odds are it'll never happen because it'll never get that bad. But if it does, that's where they will end up. The reality is the only time you're going to see a breakdown of that level is when people have lost hope that sometime in the reasonable future we're going to have things put back together. Um, people that have been to war over in Iraq and Afghanistan have written me a lot, including one of the gentlemen we heard from last week that was just an amazing story saying, hey, I saw what it looks like when things break down, and it's really bad, but it ain't anything like Hollywood says it is. And I think we can learn from that. And uh, so let's try to balance these things out. But wherever you're at in your feelings on this, it's okay. Just understand that if you are completely quiet about it, you never tell anybody, you never do anything to solidify your neighborhood, if there is an implosion, it's it, it, you're in the middle of it and everybody around you is not prepared at all. Now maybe they don't know that you're prepared, but sooner or later they're going to figure it out. Uh, unless you're going you're gonna, to you know, unask the AO and get out of there. And if that's your plan, it doesn't matter if they know you prep anyway, 
Because when they come to your house, you won't be there and all your stuff somewhere else. And in a suburban situation, urban situation, that's the best if you have the resources to do anyway. Um, I'm also going to tell you this. The people who think if we're going to be roving hordes going out to farmlands and stuff like that, when there's a catastrophe, people go to the cities. That's where they go for help. Um, it's counterintuitive to everything that Hollywood tells us, but it's the reality and history is shown to be true. I won't say any more on this because i got another question sort of like it uh, coming in just a bit. Hey, Jack. It's Jake from Milwaukee. Our wonderful, benevolent Wisconsin government has decided we will now be allowed to carry concealed. And I'm looking to hear your opinion on carrying with a dedicated gun fanny pack for carry of a full-frame 45 auto. They look comfortable, but are they really concealed, or will it be quite obvious that I'm carrying? And does it matter? Uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say, and thanks for the great podcast. We'll start out with the end of the question first. Um, if you're carrying and anybody knows, does it matter? Depends. If they know because they can make out the frame of the weapon or it's obvious that you're carrying in some sort of way where the weapon itself is revealed, even if it's unintentional, in most states that allow concealed carry and only concealed carry, do not allow open carry, it's considered brandishing. Uh, concealed means concealed. So... As long as it's a purpose-built fanny pack, and it, it, the only reason people would know is because there's a dude with a fanny pack, and dudes generally don't really carry fanny packs, um, so he's probably got a gun in there. If that's the way you mean it, then no problem. But if there's some way that it would be telegraphed, um, then, then no. I mean, the next question is, what does your state consider as valid methods of concealed carry? Uh, I don't know of any, but there may be, because of this perception, some states that say you can't carry in a fanny pack. I don't know. So you got to find out whether it's legal or not. My, my instinct is it's legal, and if that's what you want to do, there's nothing wrong with it. The downside. Since the weapon's not on your body, there's, there's potential for you to take it off somewhere and leave it behind. Um, you know, when you go into a place or, uh, let's say you go to, a, you know, where you just decide you can't bring it with you, it, you're more likely to end up leaving it somewhere. And that's the last thing you want to do is leave your gun somewhere. Even if it's somewhere where it's safe, you want it on you, and now it's not on you because you've left it somewhere. Uh, I don't believe, and no one's going to convince me of this, that you're ever going to be wearing a fanny pack, especially turn around on the fanny side of things. So you're not going to walk around with it out in your belly all the time. It's going to be to your side or, or what have you. You're going to have to pull it around and open it and, and draw. None of those situations are going to um, allow you for faster ready access to your weapon uh, something like a good uh, Kydex or leather concealed holster against your side, a strong side draw. Uh, that's going to be a much easier to access uh, and quicker to deploy weapon. But given that you want to carry a .45, I can understand why you might feel that way. Now, there are some really good Kydex uh, holsters out there. Um, that, that will help you out with, with that uh, in, in particular. In the MSB, we have a company called Orion Concepts. Uh, their owner personally built me one for uh, 1911. And I can tell you that you can carry, as long as your shirt tails are long enough, in a pair of board shorts or something like that, in a T-shirt, you can carry with that all day long. It, it, you really don't see the imprint of, of the weapon at all. There's nothing that would kind of lead to that brandishing issue, whatever. It's pretty dadgone comfortable. There's some other ways. You know, there's, you can carry with a belly band for a full size. Um, it, so there are other options. You can also decide, why are you carrying a forty five? Is it because... Like me, you love the 1911. You just think it's the perfect handgun, that, that every other handgun in the world should become a 1911, that when you pick it up and you point it, it just feels right. 
all the time, or is it because you believe you need a 45 for defense? If you believe you need a 45 for defense, let me tell you that, as we talked about earlier, a handgun versus a rifle, in any situation, I'd rather side with the rifle. And if you can't get it done with a 45, you probably, you, you probably, if you can't get it done with a 9mm, you probably can't get it done with a 45. So it's just a caliber issue. You know, there are some other lighter frame, more comfortable, easier to carry handguns out there. A lot of people will take the approach like this. They'll carry, you know, a full size weapon most of the time. And in those times where they're in lighter clothing and stuff, they'll step down to a, a 9mm or a 380 or what have you. Um, Keltec makes some good, uh, pistols for that. Walther makes some great pistols for that. Uh, what have you. So uh, you, there's no reason not to do this, except that, again, I've got something external, a little bit longer to draw. Uh, but if it's what you want to do, then I say, you know, this is not a life and death decision uh, in reality, unless you ever have to actually use it. So uh, you, you've been walking around without carrying for years. It's kind of the way I'm putting this when I say it's not life or death. It's not like buying the whole life insurance. Let's put it to you that way. Um, you've been walking around with nothing for years. So if you if you get a fanny pack and you want and you already, let's assume you already have a 1911 and that's why you're going this way and you you load it up with an extra magazine and, and, and you you know you cocked and locked and ready to rock and you've got it on you and you carry it around for a few weeks and you decide this really isn't for me I want to look at another solution you're out what maybe 60 to 120 bucks depending on the brand and, and what have you of, of the fanny pack and maybe it still has some relative uses for you and maybe you look at something that's a little bit more comfortable a little bit more um, suitable to your situation. So my advice is if you're leaning this way, try it. And realize you're not marrying the idea. You can change your mind. Most people that carry concealed go through three or four different combinations of things. And eventually, what they'll eventually do is they'll get to one they either just love or they'll get to one where they go, okay, I've done like four different things now and this isn't working. And number two was the best that I had so far. And they go back and they fall back to that. So it's kind of a thing that you know depends on your weight. I mean, the difference between somebody that's 160 pounds and a person that's 220 pounds carrying, it's going to make a difference in where you carry on your body, what the holster's like, the frame, size, all different types of things, what type of clothing you wear. Somebody that wears loose, baggy clothing all the time is going to be able to carry a different weapon than somebody that conventionally wears tight-fitting clothing. Um, so it's up to you, but I wouldn't sweat this one that much. If that's what you think you want to do, go get one and give it a shot. Even before you get your permit, you could always get the, uh, the fanny pack and don't carry a gun in it and just see how that works for carrying stuff around and see if you like it or not. I just don't like them. I mean, that's, that's the long answer around saying I just don't like walking around with a fanny pack on me. If you don't have the problem, it's probably a great way to go. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Rational Husker from the forum. I called in on a slightly related topic before, uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts about some of the pros and cons of having to uh, kind of weather the storm if, if the crap hits the fan in my current situation, which I'm sure describes a lot of people. I currently live in a smaller town, about uh, population 3,500 people or so, um, but it's near a fairly good-sized metropolitan area of, oh, I don't know, 400,000 people or so. Fortunately, um, my commute to work is short, about 13 miles, and there's probably three to four miles of open space and farm ground between that metro area, the major city, and the small town that I'm in, but the small town definitely has begun to take on a suburban feel to it. And I know there's there's drawbacks associated with that. 
Uh, I'm in a fairly good sized lot, quarter acre lot, most of it's uh, uh, backyard, so we could grow a fair amount of our own food. But the deal is, this is not the place that my family and I want to be at long term uh, for another three years or so at the most. And we're actually trying to sell a home now, but it is a very slow market right now, and I'm a little bit surprised because I thought that our area was fairly well sheltered. But anyway, if you could describe that setting, not the suburb, not a real rural small town, but kind of something in between, pros and cons, things I can do to prep, knowing we don't want to be there forever, but we may be there longer than we want, I think that would help me as well as a number of other people out. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate everything you do. Bye. Well, the first part of the answer is some things are situational, but in reality we prep the same way no matter where we're at. You know, we, we look at our five survival needs, food, shelter, water, security, uh, and, and energy. And we make sure that we have those shored up. As far as advantages or disadvantages of a small town, let's call it suburbia light versus um, in a very rural situation, if the disaster is one that's being responded to, you're going to come before people in the rural environment. Uh, one of the reasons we just got to have a generator up at our place is because if the power goes out and it's pretty much the people living on our mountain, there's about 50 houses up on that mountain. And it, we're talking about thousands and thousands of acres for that, that, that 50 uh, houses to occupy. It might not even be 50. It might be 40. So let's say the power's out. And we're affected, and uh, 2,000 people down at the north side of Hot Springs are, are uh, affected as well. Who's going to come first? Well, those 2,000 people. So if you live in anything with, with any kind of reasonable population density, as responders are responding, that's how they're going to make their determination. So the disadvantage is if there's 60,000 people at this big town without power and your 2,000-person town is without power, they come first. But at least you come second, not last. Right? So there's just you know, kind of a, a fundamental reality. Remember that the disasters that we prepare for, we prepare for in the order of likelihood, the order of probability of occurrence. And... As we move out to more people being affected, the likelihood that we're going to deal with it becomes less and less. When we look at these global disasters, these end-of-the-world scenarios, the sensational crap that Hollywood gives us, they're not as likely. So your small town, you know, kind of edge of rural suburbia community, one of the things that you generally have is a much lower, pop, uh, much lower crime rate. And the crime that you have is much lower. So as you go into it, let's say a societal decay, which I think is very, very probable, uh, the big shift that I've been talking about, uh, people descending one class level, going from upper middle class to middle class, middle class to lower middle class, lower middle class to true poverty in this country, that type of a slide, that type of a shift as as things rebalance themselves, as we as we change into a new monetary system, as we go through resource depletion, as we go through all of these different things, that's not Mad Max. you got to look around and realize, uh, Jason Akers from the Self-Sufficient Gardener podcast put it to me this way, we will burn down the last oak tree in this country before people turn off one Xbox. And on some levels he's absolutely right about that, because... When we talk about things just falling apart, we ignore all of the things and all of the resources that are already here that we already have, and we believe that no one has enough freaking brains to roll back and use what we have. So that type of a decay is not likely. So we're more likely to deal with things like the Great Depression or worse. And here's what I think. 
This is what I really think about a lot of people out there. You don't know how bad that would be. The people that are living in a, in a world where the only choice is the end of the world as we know it in the way Hollywood means it, or things stay the course as they are now, and, those are the, and there's no middle ground between there, you're fooling yourselves. And just because basic infrastructure, basic law enforcement, basic services are still in place, and maybe there's a lot less of them, but the things that are needed to keep us from going to Mad Max are there, you don't know how bad that could really be. And in this, that situation, a small town gets kind of the best of both worlds. You get the lower crime rate. You get people that know each other. You get people that are more likely to band together and defend their neighborhood. Uh, and you do get some response from authorities, and you do get some response from first responders. And you get significantly more. So I think there's actually a lot of advantages there. Myself, I prefer to be out in a more rural environment. I prefer to do it on my own. I prefer to, prefer to take care of myself. I prefer to be in an environment where the population is going to get a lot less support from outside, but the population is more likely to work together in a scenario like that. But, again, these are all personal choices. The big thing here, guys, I keep saying it. I'll say it. I'll be doing this is episode 2,136, and I'll be saying, don't believe the Hollywood hype. Don't buy into it. Understand that we've done all of these things have happened before. Societies have crumbled to the ground before, and it's never one time looked like a Hollywood movie unless it was a documentary about what really happened. During the bubonic plague, somewhere between 50 and 75% of the population on the planet died. Now, true, they didn't have the Internet that they were dependent on. They didn't have the communication systems, the climate control, the electricity, all the things we're dependent upon today. And you could say, well, since they didn't have that, is that didn't fall apart, so there wasn't a reaction to it. But they also didn't have all those things to mitigate, respond to, and deal with the catastrophe. You know why we bury people six feet underground today? Do you know the real reason we do that? Why six feet the number? Because the king of England decided during the bubonic plague that that was how deep somebody needed to be to keep the dead body from spreading the disease, which wasn't even true. Dead bodies don't spread bubonic plague. Fleas on rats do And fleas don't generally feed on the dead. <laughs> That's part of the vampire myth, I guess, right? Vampires aren't supposed to feed on the blood of the dead. Uh, but fleas generally don't feed on the blood of the dead. So it wasn't the dead really representing a real risk of the disease being spread uh, unless they, had, they were you know, recently dead, still warm, and maybe had a flea or two by them and, uh, and helped spread that disease. But... You know, we just have to start realizing that a lot of the things that we're told need to be a certain way or a lot of things we're told how things will break down and fall apart are not necessarily true. And in these realistic scenarios, it, in some ways it doesn't matter where you are. The one place you don't want to be is in the real high-density areas. I'm convinced that that's going to be the worst place. That's going to be the, the most potential for people uh, to riot, uh, to start tearing things apart, to start going nuts. In fact, I want to share something with you that somebody just sent me today. I was going to save it for the feedback show, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you now, and this will explain to, me, explain to you why I am for getting out of the severe density population areas. Listen to this. I want to say I'm not insinuating anybody's race or anything. I'm just reading this the way it was described and uh, the kind of thing that can go on in a high-density situation. This comes from the Pierre, Pierre, Peoria Chronicle. So this is from a, an actual newspaper here. Peorians living in fear. This is an eyewitness account from Paul Wilkinson, uh, president at Altamont Park Neighborhood Association. 
Tonight around 11 p.m., a group of at least 60 to 70 African-American youth marched down one side of the, one of the side streets, uh, West Thrush, uh, to the four-lane main drag at Sheridan. They were yelling threats to white residents, things such as, we need to kill all the white people around here. They were physically intimidating anyone calling for help from the police. They were surrounding cars. Cars on the main drag had to, had to slam on their brakes to either avoid the youth blocking uh, not only all four lanes, but a section of the side street as well. Fights were breaking out among them. They were usually rushing, they were rushing residents who looked out their doors uh, going onto porches, yelling threats to people, calling the police for help. Uh, cars were doing U-turns on the streets just to avoid the mob, mostly male. One youth stated his grandfather was white and several assaulted him on the spot. One police officer answered the call. The youth split into two large groups, one heading north, the other one heading south. They were also yelling racial threats to the police officer, but he was outnumbered. Another police car did not show up until after the youth finally dispersed, and the paddy wagon van also eventually showed up. Residents were very shaken, both black and white alike. This is the fifth large mob action in about a month, with smaller groups of 10 to 12 are out threatening children and adults a few evenings a week later into the night. The times vary, even occurring during the day. In talking with the police officer, they are short-staffed. Residents were advised to simply keep inside and lock their doors. In other words, buckle down. It's not even safe to sit in your porch. Go in or go into your yards. Um, that is what it is. And that's, that's, that's what's really happened there. And what I want you to understand is, clearly there's a racial element involved here, but that's not what's important. This is what things look like when things go bad in a city or a large urban area. This is what it looks like. It's not about roving hordes of mutant biker zombies coming to steal your tomatoes. It's about pissed off people that are really, really pissed off about what's going on, coming out looking to hurt people because they can and they can get away with it because law enforcement times are slower. Let me tell you what would happen if 50 or 60 people like this did this in a typical rural environment. Bang! Bang, 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 bang. Sounds of running. Now, am I happy that that's what would happen? Not really. I, I don't like to see anybody shot, but that's what would happen. And, 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 and the people that did it would say, I wish I didn't have to do it, but we don't take that shit around here. And I'm telling you right now, people get away with stuff like this in cities because city people are conditioned to call 911 and wait for help. And in cities, if you do what I just said, you're likely to end up, if somebody had come out in the street... With, with, with an AR-15 and said, y'all need to go the hell home. And said, I don't care if there's 60 of you, I've got two more magazines, go the hell home. And, 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 and these guys would have charged and been taken out. And doing it that way would have been probably really stupid. Doing it from a concealed, covered location with a bullhorn would have been a hell of a lot smarter. The police likely would have shown up and put the guy that defended the town in a jail. When people go out into a rural environment and something like this happens... You know what they usually do with the guy that defends the area? They pat him on the back and tell him he did a good job, unless he lives in England, in which case they still put him in jail. Criminals know this. People that vandalize things know this. And that's why I think your small towns, and the further you can get from the high-density populations, the better. And don't think if you are a person with racist feelings in you, this is just because these people were black. They're pissed off about something, and if it's a bunch of pissed off white people, they will do the same thing. If it's a bunch of pissed off Muslims, they will do the same thing. If it's a bunch of pissed off Hindus, they will do the same thing. 
If you get enough people together with enough anger and animosity over whatever problem they have, and there are people around them they can victimize, and they believe they can get away with the victimization, they will do it. And once numbers cross a certain threshold, and that number is usually about a dozen or more, they start to go into a mob mentality, and that's when shit starts to get really freaking dangerous, including the residents, was it Montreal or whatever, whatever Canadian team got their ass kicked by the Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup, Tearing their city apart. Ontario, I don't remember. I don't watch hockey anymore. They lost me with that last strike they did. Um, but they, they tore their town apart because they lost the freaking Stanley Cup. And once it started, it had to be put down with, with tear gas and the like because it got that bad. And the citizens of Boston, you guys need your heads examined. They had a little mini-ride up there because they won. They didn't get as bad as they did with some other things that they've won and lost in the past. But that same mentality is what takes over. And all I'm saying is, the greater the density of population, okay, the greater the number of ass clowns that will act like this there are. There is a fixed percentage of these people in all societies, in all races, in all creeds, in all faiths, in all things. There are a fixed percentage of priests that would do this stupid shit. All right? It is a fixed number of society. It's probably 1% or 2% of the society that will act this way. And it's 1% or 2% that will instigate the other 3 to 4 to 5% that are capable of acting this way. You know, there's one or two percent waiting for it. They just want to do it. And then there's this little group of, you know, if your remember your mommy said if you jumped off, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you too? Well, they would do it. They would jump off the bridge. They'll follow these people off the bridge. If you have a thousand people, you're talking about a handful of people that can be easily dealt with. When you have a situation with a city with a hundred thousand people, you're talking. Maybe 2,000 people that are like this all the time and waiting for the opportunity. Another five to 10,000 that will follow them across the line if they go first. That's why I don't like those high-density population situations. That's why I've always had the plan, if shit gets really bad, we're getting out when we lived down in Arlington. We were going to come up here. Because I promise you, we won't deal with this. Or if we have to, we will deal with it in a very, very aggressive manner. Let me just leave it at that. And the closer you get towards small town living, the more true that becomes. And make no mistake about it, the two-legged rats that do this crap, they know that. So there's my thoughts on that one. i got one more and we'll wrap up today. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Will in Virginia. Um, I don't have a specific question, just uh, a reminder to folks. Uh, it's uh, the end of June right now and blackberries are in full season, so it's a good time to get out and uh, see where those wild blackberry uh, bushes are growing uh, and start getting out there and collecting them. Of note, uh, mulberries, uh, another one that's free for the picking, uh, was a couple of weeks back, two to three weeks or so. Uh, anyway, just a thought. Uh, thanks for your show. Appreciate it. Bye. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that's uh, starting to come into season and will come into season throughout the year. And depending on where you live, uh, like blackberries down here, even though you know we're into July, I'm like three weeks back on the calls here. Uh, there's not, there's not a blackberry left on a bush now. Uh, they, we, we've been through that. We've had it. It's done. Uh, the, uh, the 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 flora canes, uh, which are the second year canes that bear fruit, have are dying, and the prima canes are doing their the rest of their growing out. Uh, so that they can become uh, second-year canes and produce next year. So uh, it's kind of gone, gone and, and done. But you know, we have uh, the wild persimmons around here are, are far from ripe. They won't ripen until probably September. Uh, we've got wild black cherry. 
that, that right now about half of the fruit on the trees are ripe and half isn't, and I need to get my butt up the road uh, sometime this week before I miss a chance to harvest them and get a, uh, a couple quarts of those because I want to try to make a beer out of those uh, this fall when I start home brewing again. So there's a lot of stuff out there right now. And part of why I put this on is I wanted to uh, to talk with you about something I haven't been doing the last couple of weeks, but I did for a while. I'll start doing it again soon. I've been putting uh, medicinal and edible plants on Facebook. Put up a picture and say, what is this? And I, sometimes I just say, whoever wins, uh, I'll pimp your Twitter account or your Facebook account for you, get you some friends. Sometimes they'll give you a free MSB. Uh, sometimes you say it's bragging rights to the winner. But everybody starts commenting, and, and I'll, I'll say things like, don't just tell me what it is. Give me some uses for it. What can you do with this? But a lot of times I'll post a picture and people say, well, if it was in flower, it would be easier to identify. Or if, uh, if the, if the leaves weren't kind of, uh, in decline right now, you know, because they've started to dry out from, from drought and a little bit insect shoot or whatever, it'd be easier to identify. And people want to know, why do I put pictures on like that? Well, sometimes it's because that's what I can find at the time of a particular plant I'm looking for to put up there. But the reality is I want us all to learn together. And occasionally I post a plant and I don't, I'll go, I don't know what the hell this one is. Maybe you can tell me, and when people name it, I'll start looking it up, and eventually I'll get a positive ID and say, okay, we've determined what this is and what does it do. But the reason I don't always post like the picture card perfect picture is because that's not real life. So as you're going out there right now, uh, and if you're in an area further north where the blackberries are still in fruit, it's real easy to identify blackberries with those great big red and black fruits on them. What does this have to do with what I'm saying? Well, what about in August? If you know what the canes look like and you know what the leaves look like and you're out there doing your preseason scouting for deer season at the end of August and you look over and you see those thorny canes, uh, journal note, mental note, GPS note, those are blackberries. You didn't get any this year, but you know where to come for them next year. And I think that it's important that we start learning to identify the, the wild edibles that we might rely on at some point or just might use in our homesteading. Uh, when they're not necessarily in their easiest to identify state. Uh, that allows us to maybe do some guerrilla gardening with them, maybe do some things to help retain water or throw some mulch down or uh, anything we can do to improve the habitat. But the big thing is it allows us to know this is a place I can find blackberry. This is a place that I can find sumac. This is a place that I can find all of these different great wild edibles that are out there. And I think that the more knowledge you get about this, the more confident you're going to be in your ability to deal with situations. And one of the things I hope that everybody takes away from this show is panic is not the way, fear is not the way. Empowerment is the way forward. Empowerment is what this needs to all be about. The more, you know, if you think you're going to live on sumac and blackberries, if the shit hits the fan, you're making a huge mistake. Because a lot of other people are going to try that. And, and the reality is that only gives you so much nourishment. But when you start to realize, well, I can take my food stores, I can take my garden, I can take these wild, and I can put all of this stuff together into, into you know, a well-diversified armament against hunger and, and, and starvation, all of a sudden you start to be a lot more empowered and you start to realize how much is available and you start to get creative and you start putting things together and you start to grow more and find more and preserve more and store more. And by the time you, you get that kind of into its, its second year in your mind, you start to realize the resiliency you've created for yourself is huge. And I do think foraging, hunting, and gathering are huge things toward our homesteading. They just can't be the only things. Because let's face it, folks, there's over 320 million people in this country now. I know that's not the official number, but the unofficial number that includes all the people that aren't supposed to be here that are here, and you can say whatever you want about whether they should be here or not, the shit, it's the fan, we're all in this together. And I got news for you. Um, 
down south of the border, things are worse than they are here. And if we have a big shit hit the fan, they're going to get worse down here, worse here. They're still going to be better here, and they're going to still keep coming. That might even be one of the big threats. In other words, this is a very large population in dense population centers. If we took away the, the 12 largest cities in this country and just took them away from the population, you'd be surprised how few people would actually live here. There's a lot of land out there. There's a lot of things that can be relied upon, but it can't be for everybody. And the people that know what the hell they're doing, if we get into a long-term situation, I'm even saying three, four, five, six months, a year, where we really have a really bad time and we need to rely on these resources, the people that have never done anything to discover them and utilize them and, and make them part of what they're doing, they might as well not even be there for them. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of people coming out of the Philadelphia projects looking for blackberries in the Pocono Mountains. It's just not going to happen. It just isn't. They don't even know to do it. But the people that are already prepared for that, if we get into a bad situation, be able to rely on it. And you might think today that I've kind of gone back and forth. I'm talking about, you know, let's not focus on these Hollywood disasters, but then I still lead you to these places where you might need to rely on these skills and these, these, these things. Well, That's because I had grandparents that lived right through the smack middle of the Great Depression. And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did. Um, you know, I have a grandfather that talked about how they used to set up rat traps, nailed to trees, baited with peanut butter, because that was a way to get squirrels. And it wasn't because they didn't like squirrels and they wanted them dead because they were eating out of their grain bin. It was because a squirrel was something you could eat. And that was one, one less day that you had to worry about putting food on the table because that, that took up that dinner plate for that day. Uh, they went hunting, they went fishing, they went gathering. There were places that my grandparents took me to go pick blueberries. And my grandfather said, you know, back in the day we had to all pile into the little coop and it only went 25 miles an hour up this hill and we came here and we picked blueberries back in back when I was a little kid here. Um, and, and that kind of stuff sticks with you. And you start to realize that history is an excellent, excellent, excellent forecaster of the future. And it teaches us two things. We will deal with tough, hard times and the shit will hit the fan. And number two, we can get through it. And the better prepared we are, the better educated we are, the better we will be able to get through it all together. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.